This episode is sponsored by Voltoro. Keep on listening and you'll find out more about how you can buy allocated gold when the Bitcoin bull run reaches its peak. This way, you don't have to deal with infinitely inflationary fiat or banks that freeze your account. Also, note that trading involves risks and the information presented is not financial advice. This episode is also sponsored by Wasabi Wallet. Go to wasabiwallet.io, download Wasabi for your OS and significantly boost your network level and transaction privacy. Hello there and welcome to Season 8, Episode 11 of the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. This is a very special episode. I'm going to be talking to somebody who has spent many years in academia, has studied very interesting stuff with quantum physics and quantum computing, and has some lots of interesting ideas in regards to Bitcoin security. He's, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the lead developer of Spectre Wallet and is also one of the masterminds behind the Spectre DIY project, which helps you build your own hardware wallet. His name is Stepan Snigirev, or Snigirev, depending on where you come from in the world. And he's a very brilliant man who doesn't get too much attention or credit, but among the developer circle, he's very much appreciated. So hello, Stepan. Uh, Hi, and uh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. And I first want to ask you about your project with Spectre. You told me while we were still doing the prep talk that it took you two years to write. And it's only at this point that you feel confident about releasing it out to the world and recommending it to people. How did you come up with the idea and how is it different from something like Electrum that's very well known and has been around for so many years? Uh, So if we talk about Spectre Desktop, the software wallet, uh, then it is... uh well, not two years old, it's more like one and a half, maybe, years old. Uh, so uh, what? how we decided to write it, uh, basically we already had a Spectre DIY, uh, the hardware wallet that we were prototyping, and we wanted to have some kind of uh, wallet support. Uh, and uh, I looked at uh, available options, and basically you could have something like Electrum, uh, and uh, you could do something with Bitcoin Core, and that was the time when Andrew Chow actually started uh, HWI, the hardware wallet interface for all the hardware wallets to work with PSBT, and Bitcoin Core also was uh, getting PSBT support. Uh, and uh, Electrum back in the days was using their own transaction format that is not PSBT and it is not uh, very well documented. So I was looking at it and uh, thinking that well, why don't we just take Bitcoin Core? And you can also run uh, it uh, as a full node, so you don't need to rely on any centralized services. Um, And, well, even though you could do the same with Electrum, it requires some extra steps. Uh, But what could be easier and simpler than just taking Bitcoin Core, like the reference implementation, and uh, using that uh, as a watch-only wallet? And it already had the uh, support for descriptors, like the very initial support of descriptors. Uh, So we felt like we had everything that we need to build uh, a nice UX around it. So the only problem of Bitcoin Core uh, that 
we had back then and we still have now is that the user interface is not really friendly. So it is a great uh, daemon, great implementation, very well tested, very well code reviewed. But as soon as you try to actually use it like this Bitcoin Qt, the interface, uh, it kind of sucks, especially if you try to do it uh, with the hardware wallet, then it is, it is even worse. So you can't really do it uh, from the GUI. So you have to use command line here and there. So it is not very pleasant, I'd say. So what we decided to do is like the simplest thing ever. We take Bitcoin Core, we take HWI, the work that is already done, and we put them together, like glue them together uh, and put a nice web interface on top of that. So that's how Spectre Desktop kind of appeared. Uh, and uh, for us, it was uh, very convenient because, yeah, you can have a, a browser-based uh, interface that can display QR codes, scan QR codes, all the, uh, all the tech is known. So, like, it's pretty uh, nice and easy to develop. And then uh, underneath, you have functionality of Bitcoin Core that is, uh, like, really well written and tested and reviewed. So uh, we started that and then we started adding uh, other hardware wallets because from the very beginning we uh, were focusing on the multisig just because, well, multisig uh, security-wise is uh, always better than single-sig, uh, even though it is a little bit complicated, but I think we will get to it later. So uh, we also saw that there are not many software wallets that properly support multisig. So even uh, now, well, now there are uh, more wallets that uh, work with multi-sig, like Sparrow, for example, Gordian Wallet, or uh, Electrum probably uh, is the oldest one and the one that has the best uh, multi-sig support. But um, back in the days, basically, you had uh, only options like Electrum or nothing really else. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, somehow we got uh, quickly got support for all major hardware wallets, uh, mostly because of HWI, because Andrew Chow did uh, great work uh, putting together like this uh, kind of translation tool between uh, PSBT and custom transaction formats that are used by different hardware wallets. So from our side, again, it was very easy. Uh, you just take PSBT, uh, you feed it into HWI, and you get uh, uh, all the communication with your hardware wallet. Mm, yep, that's uh, how it appeared. Uh, at first, it was not very user-friendly in sense that installation uh, was difficult, so you had to do it through uh, Python and pip. Uh, then, sometime later, we released the uh, binaries, so you can just uh, download it and run on your computer now. Uh, I think we added Windows uh, support only like in after half a year or so, and it was really experimental. We didn't even test it, so we just tried and kind of put it together. Uh, and uh, yeah, so you said that I'm a lead developer of Spectre Desktop. It's not quite true anymore. So I started this project, uh, but uh, then like a year ago, Ben Kaufman uh, joined uh, kind of this project and started contributing. And now I think he is the main developer because, well, I do some pull requests here and there and he is managing like everything, including the community, the bug fixes, issues, new functionality, everything. And I'm actually happy that I can focus uh, on my side, on uh, the hardware wallet side, and uh, also 
help with Spectre Desktop a bit, uh, but uh, it helps me a lot that it's not just me anymore, but there is a whole team uh, working on that. Yeah. So I guess it's more correct to call you the creator as opposed <laughs> to the lead developer. Uh, yeah, yeah, something like that. All right. So there seem to be a lot of wallets that work with PSBT nowadays. It's something that came to my mind while you were speaking. It seems to be very popular. Last year, there were only two hardware wallets using it. I think the cold card was the first one, and then we had the Kobo vault. And now we have at least three open source DIY projects that you can choose to use for yourself while making use of PSBT, which is interesting. And it makes me wonder, as I spoke with Peter Todd last year, and he told me that there's nothing really special about PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions in terms of security. So is there something more to it? What is so special about PSBT? Well, it's a beep. And if it's a beep, it is a standard. So like we uh, have this uh, Bitcoin improvement pr proposals, right? Uh, and uh, when something gets in there and gets adapted by the community, uh, it becomes a standard, even though it is nothing special. So like Trezor is using Protobuf, uh, Ledger is using their own, like uh, this uh, APDU commands. Uh, and uh, internally, like you just need some kind of way to encode the transaction such that the other side can understand that. So like the hardware wallet. Uh, and uh, the great thing about PSBT is not like it is a great standard or whatever, but that was actually finally standardized and brought into the community and became uh, like adopted by many wallets. So it's, uh, it's really more about standardization, not about the thing that uh, it is somehow better than any other implementation. And uh, right now we have like plenty of wallets that support that. So Wasabi, uh, like on the software side, Wasabi, I think, started like almost the first ones. Bitcoin Core, obviously. Electrum switched to PSBT. Blue Wallet is using PSBT. Sparrow. Uh, what else? Uh, I think that most of the software wallets use PSBT now because then in order to add support for all the hardware wallets, you just need to feed this PSBT into uh, HWI, for example. And uh, as far as I understand, many uh, wallets do exactly that. Either they use directly uh, HWI or they use uh, a similar implementation that converts from PSBT to uh, like Trezor format or whatever. Uh, and uh, if your hardware wallet supports natively PSBT, then it becomes easier. You don't need this additional translation layer. So code cards, Kobo, uh, Spectre, uh, Bowser from Ben, uh, Seed Signer, uh, all these devices support PSBT. You can even use uh, your old uh, Android phone and install Electrum uh, on that phone and make it air gap. And also, Electrum as a signer uh, uses PSBT. Yeah, so uh, the main thing here is. Finally, we have a standard that everyone can implement and then with minimal effort get integrated in the whole ecosystem. That's interesting. And I like how you foreshadowed my next question. As I was about to ask you about the commercially available hardware wallets that you can build yourself. Because right now you can build yourself a Trezor, you can build from parts a Bitbox 02. And I think, and I'm not sure if you can build a cold card. I think you can build it, but you cannot sell it. 
But why would users build a Spectre DIY as opposed to one of these? Uh, well, so the nice thing about do-it-yourself wallets is that, um, well, it, it's tricky. It's uh, like two-sided coin, right? So uh, on one side, uh, you really need to know what you are doing, especially if you are writing your own hardware wallet, like uh, Ben or SeedSigner are doing. They just uh, uh, take the library and they write from scratch the whole thing. And then here it is a little bit tricky uh, when you go get to like transaction verification, change address verification, secret storage, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, but that's more like on the developer side. For uh, uh, normal people, uh, what are the trade-off? Uh, so if you are building a hardware wallet yourself, then you uh, get off-the-shelf components, so you avoid supply chain attack, at least nobody knows that you are building a hardware wallet, then uh, you have to flash it yourself. This is the tricky part. So if your computer is compromised at the moment when you are uploading the firmware to the hardware wallet, then your hardware wallet can become malicious as well. So this is like a really uh, dangerous part. So like if you are building a hardware wallet, keep in mind that uh, actually it ends up to the security of your laptop at the point when you are uploading the firmware. Uh, and in case of uh, other hardware wallets, like uh, normal hardware wallets, like Trezor Ledger and so on, uh, so you disclose your address that you are buying the uh, Bitcoin hardware wallet. So this means that you become a target for some kind of phishing attacks and things like that. Uh, then you also trust uh, that they at their factory are uploading correct firmware. So you are trusting that uh, the employees of the company uh, are trustworthy and then the whole uh, firmware uploading process uh, is fine. So it could happen at some point that some employee gets malicious and uploads malicious firmware to all the hardware wallets that he has access to. Uh, well, obviously this company is trying very hard to avoid this kind of situations. But again, it's uh, the question of your choice and your security model. Who do you trust more, the companies uh, or your computer that also could be potentially compromised? And uh, this is also why uh, we started by uh, implementing multisig because, uh, well, you can mitigate many of this risk and many of these trade-offs if you combine multiple hardware wallets with different security models in your setup. So then kind of you uh, exponentially increase the uh, security uh, and decrease the chances of the attack. Right, but my question was not necessarily about why users should build their own hardware wallet, but more like why should they build uh, a Spectre? Spectre. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you're going to buy off-the-shelf parts from the internet, why build a Spectre as opposed to a Trezor? What's the difference? Uh, well, I mean, to build your own Trezor, you actually need to go through the contacts with the manufacturer uh, of uh, PCBs, you need to solder things, you need to do plenty of uh, extra steps. So you can't just buy a thing and flash the firmware there. So with Spectre DIY uh, and uh, Bowser and SeedSigner, uh, you actually get uh, components that are off the shelf like developer boards and flash it there and then there is nothing else really that is necessary. Uh, so uh, in that sense, building your own treasure might be a little bit problematic, uh, like you need to do 
to make more steps to get it assembled. So it is quite a challenge. Uh, so if we are talking about like uh, why they should pick um, Spectre DIY against uh, Bowser and Seed Signer, uh, well, the question is more again about your security model. So uh, just to cover a few features of uh, all these wallets. Uh, so uh, Bowser by Ben is based on the uh, ESP32, the cheap, uh, well, pretty cheap chip, I mean, inexpensive chip, I think it's like a few bucks. Uh, and uh, the problem there is that first, um, it is partially closed source. So like, uh, when you have this Bluetooth and Wi-Fi stack that is running on one core of the microcontroller, and then you, there is your code that is running on another one. Uh, so like, you don't quite know what is running on the other part of the microcontroller, that is a bit scary. Now, then the other problem is that there are known vulnerabilities on this chip, how to uh, actually attack it and extract the flash. And by the way, it's the same chip that is used in, uh, in Jade, I think. Mm, yeah, so that is also a little bit scary. And then uh, another thing is that uh, both these projects, SeedSigner and Bowser, uh, they don't have a secure bootloader. Uh, so this means that... Uh, anyone with a direct access, physical access to the device uh, can read out all the information that is stored on these devices. And this is actually the main problem of the DIY projects, uh, because this secure bootloader part takes a lot of work. So uh, when we implemented that, it took us three, four months before we actually deployed this secure bootloader. So what it does, it locks the firmware on the microcontroller such that uh, only signed, correctly signed firmware by developers can be uploaded there. So, and uh, it cannot be read out. So when you're connecting your uh, hardware wallet to the computer, even though you shouldn't if it is air get, right? Uh, but still, if you connect it, then you can read out everything from it if it doesn't have a secure bootloader. So that's uh, probably the main difference. Otherwise, uh, I think seed signer is only using amnesic mode, so basically you need to enter your recovery phrase uh, into the seed signer every time when you turn on the device. Mm, Bowser, I think, saves it on the chip. Uh, Spectre DIY has multiple options, so you can run it either in amnesic mode, uh, or you can save it uh, on the internal flash of the microcontroller that is not quite secure, uh, or you can uh, store it on the smart card, that is basically a secure element, secure chip, um, depends on your particular configuration. Uh, also, another difference is the price. So, Spectre DIY is kind of expensive. Uh, so, the discovery board that we are using is around 50 bucks. Then, if you add a QR code scanner on top of that, that's another 40. Uh, then, if you add something like uh, our extension board or some kind of uh, card reader, then it will add another 20, I think. So in total, it uh, ends up in the order of uh, 100, 150 or so. So it's not as affordable as, let's say, SeedSigner or Bowser wallet, because Bowser is like 20 bucks, SeedSigner is 20, 40, I think, on that order of magnitude. So the question is also about the price. All right, so what is the recommended stack that you must buy in order to build your own Spectre DIY? 
And what is the price that is recommended for this? Uh, so in the GitHub repository, we have a, a document called Shopping, I think, where we provide the links to where you can buy it. So uh, the core part of the Spectre DIY is uh, the discovery board from ST Microelectronics. So it is a developer board that has a pretty nice uh, screen, like uh, four inch screen, I think, um, and uh, the microcontroller and everything that you need. Uh, so if you just buy this board, that is this first 50, uh, then uh, you already have a functional hardware wallet uh, that can work either with USB connectivity or with SD cards, so AirGap with SD card. Uh, then if you add on top of that the QR code scanner, uh, so we are using QR code scanner from WaveShare, so there is a particular uh, model that we optimize for. Mm, it should work with other QR scanners as well, but uh, would require some extra wiring. Mm, then uh, this is another 40 and then you can have the uh, pretty convenient way to communicate with the host with QR codes. So you scan a QR code with this QR code scanner, the, then you sign on the hardware wallet and then you scan back uh, the QR codes from the host, so similar to Kobo. Uh, then another option is to add this smart card to it. So this is a bit tricky. We were trying to find a way to uh, get it off the shelf. Unfortunately, we didn't find an easy way yet. Uh, so uh, right now we developed an extension board for this discovery uh, that uh, puts in a single board both the QR code scanner, the battery, and the uh, smart card reader. Uh, so, and then you can use uh, a smart card uh, you know, this plastic card similar to your like government ID or banking card uh, to store your secret. So uh, then you also cover like this uh, secure element area of hardware wallets. Uh, but uh, right now, the only way to get this uh, extension board is from us. That's not great. Uh, but we are working on the support of uh, normal uh, smart card readers, so like what you can buy from Amazon or something, and then you could connect it to the discovery board and use that uh, for secure storage as well. Yeah. So right now, discovery board and QR code scanner, and then uh, you are on the security level of um, something like Trezor, basically. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's good to hear that it's rel relatively easy for you to acquire the parts that help you build your own. Maybe that it's not the most convenient to know that you have greater costs involved. So I suppose to some extent, it's more affordable to buy something basic like a Trezor. But at the same time, if you live under a regime which prevents you from buying Bitcoin products or you're not allowed to receive shipments from outside, you can say that you're building yourself a gaming console or something that you can also build with the general purpose parts. And that's why I like the Bowser wallet, just because it has that extra plausible deniability. I think Ben is kind of geeky in this regard because most people will not use Morse code to type in their pin. But at the same time, I can see the value proposition because there are people who will not be able to build devices for themselves, or they, they will not be able to buy them, so they will build them for themselves. And uh, I would say that uh, 
Another thing that we really try hard to kind of maintain in Spectre DIY is to give the user the choice of the security model. Uh, so as I said, you basically have many options how to store the keys. Uh, one is uh, similar to seed signer is amnesic mode. So whenever you turn off the device, it forgets the key. And then, um, well, no other wallets uh, like uh, normal wallet actually does it so right uh, code cards treasure uh, ledger they are all storing the keys somewhere you know like with different security models but they are storing them so you still can wipe the device every time for example if you are su too paranoid uh, and I know a few people that do that actually uh, but uh, here it is like a out of the box uh, uh, functionality uh, then you kind of need to either remember your recovery phrase or type it from your backup every time, so that's not very convenient. Uh, and then you also have other options uh, for key storage. So you can store it in the uh, microcontroller itself. Uh, this is like a treasure security model. So also the chip that is not super secure, that can be hacked if you have direct access to it uh, with some glitching or something. Uh, but uh, yeah... Uh, you could do that. Uh, another option that we have is you can encrypt the secret and put it into the SD card. Uh, and then uh, this device will be able to load this uh, secret from the SD card. Uh, but this makes you uh, makes the whole thing like kind of two of two, right? So you need both the device and the SD card uh, that you put together and then uh, you will get access to your secret. Uh, and yeah, the third one is storing it on the secure element and then it comes more like into uh, the code card security model or COBA security model mode uh, where uh, you actually have a, a secure chip that has some closed source parts. Uh, so uh, this Java cards that we are using or this uh, smart cards, um, they have an interesting, um, well, how to say, this interesting architecture. So uh, you can buy them off the shelf. So you just go to the uh, online shop and order this, uh, these cards. Uh, and they have secure chip in there. And you can actually write an application for the secure chip. And everything that we write for these cards is actually open source. So we have this uh, Spectre Java card repository where we put all the code. Uh, but uh, it runs on top of proprietary closed source uh, virtual machine uh, that was developed by either Infineon or NXP or whatever card you use. Uh, but the thing here is, okay, we know that it is somehow secure and we know that it is certified and whatever it means. Uh, and uh, we know that it is definitely better than any like normal microcontroller that was built not for security but for performance. Uh, so we can use the security even though we don't know how exactly it is implemented and if there are bugs or not, but we can use it to protect our secrets better. Um, and uh, again, uh, everything that we do on our side, we are in the same position as all our users. So we don't have... Uh, access to the codes, low-level code that is running on the secure elements. Um, yeah, so, uh, and the main thing here is, yeah, you need to decide yourself how exactly you want to store your secret. Yeah, yeah it's, the, once again, it's funny that you foreshadowed my question because I was about to ask you specifically about secure element chips. And on one hand, right now, we have the ledger approach, which means that you have one chip that's, the most secure that you can get, but you cannot verify it, so you don't know what's going on in the background. 
and Ledger doesn't know. That's the whole point. And on the other hand, you have off-the-shelf general-purpose security chips like the ATEX 608 that you can find in projects like the Cold Card, Bitbox 02, the Passport, and I'm pretty sure that there are a few more. And it's a pretty popular chip. It's used only for one purpose. It can do a lot more, obviously, so it gets disabled for other uses. But at the same time, there are some trade-offs involved because it's still not 100% open source. It's just something that you can pick up and program yourself. And there's that project by Trezor that's called Tropic Square. And they're trying to build truly open source chips. And I hope that they succeed and they're going to turn the industry around and help us get a more transparent kind of security. And what is your take on this whole situation? When do you think that the trade-off is worth it? And when should you just accept that you will not have physical security and try to mitigate it with software solutions like a passphrase? Um, so, yeah, security elements are tricky, uh, especially the whole security industry is a little bit too, um, like, uh, security by obscurity is like the, um, the way how they approach all this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, Ledger, as you said, uh, is using the secure element and Ledger actually knows and implements the code and they signed the NDA. And uh, from uh, my experience with Ledger and what I know about their team, they're really, really good at uh, hardware security. So the guys are actually from security industry and they are also doing certifications and hacking and so on. So, um, in that sense, uh, I think that uh, the fact that Ledger committed to their own implementation and they went through all this NDA and stuff uh, is actually very good. Uh, well, they will not try to open source anything because I think that their security model is more like, okay, trust us that we know what we are doing. And I actually trust them that they know what they are doing in the sense of hardware security. So, uh, And I would definitely recommend uh, Ledger to uh, people that are fine with the single SIG uh, setups. Uh, but obviously, Bitcoin community as a whole prefers open source. And uh, Trezor is like on the other completely different side of the spectrum. So uh, right now uh, what they have is no hardware security whatsoever. So there are even known hacks, hacks how to extract the seed from, uh, from a Trezor device. Uh, but the Tropic Square uh, is really ambitious, but also really, really awesome product. Uh, so uh, I talked to Pavel about uh, their current state and uh, like uh, when they will be on the market and so on. And uh, I uh, th I will definitely integrate this chip into Spectre DIY as soon as it is available. And from what I understand about the first uh, step of their approach is that they basically want to build an open source uh, version of uh, this uh, um, EC, whatever the code card is using um, of this chip. So basically, it will be uh, just the key storage under the pin code. Uh, and I think this is a very good first step. So like you don't overcomplicate the whole thing. Uh, so you start small. And then uh, when you see the demand, you make more and more and more things. Uh, so I think that they have pretty good chances of succeeding and actually releasing the chip. As far as I understand, they already have uh, prototypes on FPGAs. So now the question is uh, to find the fab, to 
manufacture this stuff uh, and uh, yeah hopefully in a year or so we will actually see them uh, like the first prototypes that will be really really awesome uh, and i think this is what bitcoin is a community and like uh, this uh, companies that are working in Bitcoin can handle because uh, Bitcoin price is going crazy. So if you had like uh, 100 Bitcoins 10 years ago, uh, you now have enough funds to uh, to actually manufacture the custom secure chip. Uh, so I think that maybe Trezor can handle that. Um, so another interesting project to mention is uh, Precursor by Bunny uh, that was recently uh, funded and it is not quite a hardware wallet, uh, it's more like a communication device that is also uh, fully open source and PGA based, pretty expensive uh, for very paranoid people, but they are also trying to build an open source platform. Uh, and secure, including some anti-temper measures and uh, uh, everything is uh, also like flashed on the user side when you receive the device. So all these nice things of the open source. Uh, they have some problems with the components right now, but I think that they also have a very good chance of actually uh, releasing uh, the device, even though it will be a very niche device and uh, pretty expensive. but. Still very interesting project to look at. Uh, then regarding other available components, so uh, this uh, chip that is used by CodeCard Passport and Bitbox, um, well, one thing that worries me, uh, it's built for things like printers and drills and other things. So like uh, when you have uh, a printer, for example, that has a cartridge, uh, and you, you uh, as a manufacturer of the printer, wants to make sure that only uh, genuine cartridges can be inserted in the printer because this is how they make the money, right? Uh, and uh, they put their chips like that, uh, that's supposed to be like this key storage and authentication devices uh, to make sure that uh, only like uh, valid cartridges are inserted in there. So it's kind of security chip, but it is not a highly security chip. So in that sense, from uh, hardware security point, I think that uh, the chips that Ledger uses is more secure, uh, and the chips that uh, use all other wallets are kind of okay, but I think that uh, Tropic Square definitely can take uh, this market. Uh, there is another chip that we are looking at. Um, it is an experiment by uh, the company Maxim Integrated, the American company. So um, they uh, released recently, like a year ago, uh, a secure chip uh, that is not certified, but kind of secure. Uh, but the nice thing about that, it doesn't require NDA. Uh, so this means that it is the first ever chip that has some kind of hardware security, like anti-tempering and anti-glitching, all this kind of security mechanisms that you can buy and program yourself uh, without signing any NDA and you can open source the code as well. So these are like three interesting things that I would definitely look at. Uh, Maxim, uh, Tropic Square and uh, Precursor. Yeah. Yeah, you also mentioned Bunny, and I'm going to look into that after we finish the interview. I'm actually curious to see how that one works. Uh, well, uh, that's not quite a hardware wallet, but 
Yeah, it's really interesting approach for what well, they are trying to do this uh, secure communication device. But I was seriously thinking about uh, taking what they do, mm, getting rid of all these communication chips, adding the camera and uh, adding the um, Bitcoin crypto libraries in there. And then you can actually mm, get a pretty, uh, pretty nice hardware wallet. And Voltoro, and that's V-A-U-L-T, like a gold volt, and O-R-O, Oro, which is Spanish for gold, is a gold and Bitcoin exchange, which offers instant swaps between hard money to over 31,000 customers from more than 95 countries. Voltoro has offered Swiss privacy and security since 2015. Furthermore, the gold you purchase is your legal property, secured in your name, so even if something happens to Voltoro, even liquidators could not touch your gold. If you want to become the custodian of your own gold bars, you can request to have them delivered to you or simply trade them back to Bitcoin on the dip. Register for free in only 30 seconds and start trading only with hard money. Please keep in mind that all trading involves risks. This is not financial advice and you're responsible for your own decisions. When you are using Wasabi Wallet, your internet connection gets routed through the Tor network by default. This means that you get better privacy while using Bitcoin. Download it today at wasabiwallet.io Okay, so you mentioned something interesting that you would normally recommend to people using single SIG setups to use a ledger. When should people use multi-SIGs? Do you think that there is like a threshold for the amount of money that they hold or a moment when they acquire enough expertise or understanding of how this works to start using multi-SIGs? Uh, yeah, you definitely need to understand how multi-SIG work before you start using it. So my feeling is like for a normal uh, person entering Bitcoin field, uh, how you should handle that uh, is probably you start with, uh, as everyone, with storing money on the exchange, even though it is a terrible idea. We saw many exchanges uh, shutting down and people losing the funds. So as soon as you at least understand how Bitcoin wallets work, you should definitely move to uh, the software wallet. Uh, and then I think that uh, adding hardware wallet to that should be as soon as possible. As soon as you have more than a few hundred euros, basically, you should definitely move it into uh, into a hardware wallet. And in that sense, I think uh, Trezor and Ledger are fine. So I wouldn't recommend uh, cold cards for the single seek uh, or like for not very experienced person in general because it has a pretty bad UX uh, and uh, in that sense Trezor T or Ledger X are uh, much better. Uh, and so from the security perspective, like I'm always looking at hardware wallets from as a security. Uh, I think Ledger X is currently the most secure hardware wallet in the market because it is the only hardware wallet that uh, has a secure element that controls the screen. Uh, the thing is that mm, you need to verify what you are signing. And with all other hardware wallets, uh, 
either they don't have a secure element white tracer or they have a secure element only for key storage. But whenever you need to sign something or to display the transaction, uh, this information goes through the normal microcontroller. And in that sense, uh, Ledger X, only X, uh, S is different, uh, has this uh, functionality that the secure element is controlling the display. And this is really huge. And I don't know why they don't they market it this way. Because, yeah, they say uh, Bluetooth, uh, security to go, and blah, blah, blah. But instead, you need to emphasize that, okay, this is actually when the secure element is controlling the display. This is like really huge. Um, yeah, so in that sense, that's the reason why I think Ledger X is great. Uh, and then as soon as you start using multi-seq, and you should start using multi-seq as soon as you have, uh, well, basically significant amount of money on the storage, I would start using multi-seq with maybe 10K, but it's also different depending on the country, depending on how much you earn and so on. Uh, but I think that at some point, uh, if you're really afraid to lose the funds, you should start using Multisig. Uh, because also, um, a few years ago, I did a research on the attacks on different hardware wallets. And uh, what I found out is that over a year, uh, there were like more than 20 different attacks on different hardware wallets. And some of these attacks were even, uh, I would call them fuck-ups. Uh, they were so terrible that uh, the malicious laptop could steal your funds uh, or lock your funds without uh, actually direct access to the hardware. So uh, like fully remote attack. And that is pretty bad. So uh, if you think about that and understand that, okay, probably there are like dozens of attacks every year that can compromise your hardware wallet. Uh, how can I use them in a secure way then? So the thing is that um, the chance that there is an um, active attack, not fixed attack on your hardware wallet, if it is one hardware wallet at any time is pretty high. So probably there is an attack how you can hack it. Uh, either with direct access or remotely, but that matter, there is an attack. Uh, but then if you combine multiple uh, hardware wallets from multiple vendors, what is the chance that on two different hardware wallets there are two active attacks, like known to the malicious sector attacks uh, that can be exploited at the same time. It is like quadratically uh, or probability, right? So as soon as you add more and more implementations into your multi-sig setup, uh, the chances that uh, someone will be able to hack all your hardware wallets, all your signers at the same time uh, becomes like negligible. The question is, it also increases the complexity of the backup and maintaining this nightmare. So I would say that if you have 1 million euros in Bitcoin, <laughs> then you probably want to go to something like at least two of three. Yeah. Okay, so what is your take on Shamir secret sharing? Because it's not supported by all hardware wallets. I think right now there are only two of them that do. But it's still interesting because it creates something like a multi-sig setup without being a multi-sig setup. And the benefit, I think, is that you don't pay higher on-chain fees. And until, you know, Taproot gets activated and you can use that, you also don't know which side of the transaction has spent or which parts of your backup were used for the spending. 
so I think the Tremere uh, Secret Fern is great for uh, backing up the wallet. Uh, the problem with Tremere is uh, currently before Taproot and Schnorr are activated, uh, you actually need to assemble all these shares on the same device. So if you are assuming that there is an attack on the particular device, uh, particular manufacturer, then uh, it is kind of a threat compared to uh, multi-vendor, multi-seek. Uh, another problem, I recently looked into Sleep39, the Shamir Secret Sharing Standard by Trezor, and uh, what I found that is really annoying is that current standards that Trezor and Kobo implement uh, is not compatible with the uh, BIP39, with the normal recovery phrase. So uh, I mean, my dream setup would be I take my recovery phase, my mnemonic, and I split it into Shamir shares. Uh, the problem is, and, and then like if I want to uh, combine it and put it on some kind of software wallet that supports BIP39, I can do this. Uh, and if I uh, have uh, access to device or software that supports Shamir secret sharing, I could do that as well. Uh, the problem is that you cannot do it right now. So either you use Shamir, uh, or you use uh, BIP39. And this is the problem because, yeah, they are not compatible with each other. You need to make this stupid choice uh, what to use, something that everyone supports or something that only two hardware wallets support. So this is the only thing that is really stopping me from implementing into Spectre DIY. So I'm still thinking how exactly to do that in a nice way because uh, generally Shamir Secret Sharing is a very good way to split your secrets and to uh, secure your backups. Uh, but yeah, it's just standard is, I'm not very happy with the standard right now. Yeah, plus you can do a Shamir and on top of it do a multi-sig. Hmm. Uh, well, you can uh, make multiple uh, seats and then you can split each of them, for example. Uh, well, it becomes a nightmare in sense of storing these recovery phrases. I mean, uh, you don't want to store recovery phrases or Shamir shares in the same place. Uh, so you need to distribute them somehow. So you need to uh, get some safe places to to put things. And uh, I mean, I would never store anything like a, a Bitcoin key in my office because many people have access there. Uh, at home, it is kind of okay, but it is just one place. And then uh, deposit boxes, something like that. But then how many deposit boxes do I need? Uh, so Shamir on top of multi-seek, I think, is overkill and overcomplicating things. So I would say that either you do Shamir or you do multi-seek. Yeah. Okay. I've mentioned at the beginning of our interview that you have worked and have done academic research in the field of quantum computing. And I suppose that you're qualified to let us know what is the current state of development and how far we are from building machines that are able to decrypt SHA-256 and possibly break the cryptography of Bitcoin. Are we far away from that moment or do you think it's ever possible? Uh, ever possible, yes. When is another question. So first, uh, a small comment. Uh, SHA-256 is just a hashing algorithm that, uh, okay, we use in different places, but it doesn't really uh, add much security. So the main security uh, 
kind of instance is elliptic curve cryptography. Uh, so if we are talking about quantum computers breaking that, so I see two possible uh, approaches like yeah, imagine I'm building a quantum computer, and yeah, I can easily imagine that because I did it, but uh, anyways, so what I can try to do, so first, uh, I can, uh, there are two algorithms that are really suited for uh, breaking this kind of thing, so there is Grover algorithm that breaks uh, hashing functions uh, and uh, enables quantum mining, and then another one is uh, Shor algorithm that is breaking elliptic curve cryptography. Uh, so, both are pretty difficult, uh, and uh, both require something like thousands of uh, logical qubits and uh, probably millions of uh, operations on them, gates, quantum gates. Uh, so this is like the level that we need to achieve. So thousand qubits, millions of operations. Uh, current state-of-the-art quantum computers, for example, by ABM and others, uh, they operate with five to ten uh, qubits and they're not uh, very uh, stable I would say so you can't do many operations on them maybe on the order of hundred so we are at the level of ten qubits and hundred gates so there are like uh, two three orders of magnitude before uh, we could tackle the problem of elliptic curves and uh, hashing functions uh, so, how fast it can develop? So, basically, uh, what I observed in the industry is that uh, when you build a new web from scratch, it takes roughly like five years. So, you start by researching what uh, was done at the moment. You come up with ideas how to improve the whole setup. You start building it because your old setup doesn't work anymore because, yeah, there are too many things to change. So, you get a new web, you start building it, you spend five years on building that. Uh, after that, you'll get something like order of magnitude um, improvement comparing uh, to old five-year five-year-old papers. So basically, this means that every five years um, we can exp expect something like uh, ten times uh, improvement on this number of qubits and so on. So this means that basically we need at least two rounds, so like ten years in sense of qubits, and then we also need something like three, four rounds, so like 20 years uh, in sense of number of gates. And there will be problem on problems on top, uh, like uh, all these physical qubits are not really uh, great compared to logical qubits and blah, blah, blah. So I would say that at least 20 years we have uh, before we can actually see something that could potentially break uh, what we use today. So, 20 years probably sounds a little bit scary, right? Uh, not too much. <laughs> uh, so, but we will also see the development in uh, quantum computing uh, earlier, let's say quantum canaries or something like that. So, uh, for example, there are many applications where we don't need these thousands of qubits and millions of gates. Uh, we actually need... Um, much less, uh, let's say, on the order of hundreds or so, and then we already have uh, significant improvements in the life. So, like neural networks will be trained much faster. We will get like superconductivity stuff. Uh, we will start 
maybe doing quantum mining because for actually mining uh, you need you don't need to reverse the whole hashing function you only need to find the solution that uh, gets certain number of zeros in the beginning uh, and uh, many other things uh, so you will see that quantum computers are coming and the moment uh, what i know from uh, my co-workers uh, that work in the quantum field um, they are really struggling just finding uh, any practical application for the quantum computers next-gen uh, quantum computers that they're building right now so i would say that we have around 20 years for sure uh, and then uh, the question is how do we solve the problem that okay quantum computers are coming in 20 years yeah. so uh, what can we do about it so there is a whole huge research area post-quantum uh, cryptography uh, that could uh, well bring us something reasonable so right now uh, many uh, shitcoins are actually deploying this uh, post-quantum cryptography uh, algorithms and the problem with them is that often these new cryptography algorithms uh, that are supposed to be resistant against quantum computers they are not resistant against classical computers so like uh, all these algorithms many of these algorithms very many uh, can be actually easily broken by a normal computer and this is uh, like why it will never get like these particular algorithms will shouldn't uh, be rushed into bitcoin in, in general so altcoins experimental yeah go for it whatever uh, but for bitcoin we need something really reliable uh, and there are a few interesting algorithms that have uh, nice uh, anti-quantum features let's say so like uh, post-quantum cryptographic uh, algorithms um, that are also based on elliptic curves and there are others um, that could be deployed and we see that in principle nothing stops us from adding another signature scam scheme into bitcoin we are adding schnorr signatures now right so yeah we already have experience uh, with adding new signature schemes. So I don't see really a huge problem there as soon as we have a very good and uh, well-working uh, post-quantum crypto that is suitable for Bitcoin that can be developed even in 10 years, whatever, uh, then we can start uh, thinking about how to integrate it in Bitcoin. That's my take on it. Okay, and this might sound kind of like a stupid question, but right now we are in the process of transitioning from elliptic curve digital signature algorithm to Schnorr. Do you think that this is going to help in any way with quantum resistance? Or is it just a useful exercise to integrate new signatures that in the future might become quantum resistant? Uh, well, I think that it has nothing to do with quantum resistance for sure. So uh, Schnorr signatures are very similar to ECDSA and they can't really protect from quantum computers but it is a very good uh, exercise on uh, adding new signature schemes so uh, like uh, it's more like just testing how it could uh, go on but in general i think that uh, schnorr signatures are really really awesome and i'm looking forward to them and i will rush into implementing uh, taproot and schnorr uh, as soon as it is there and we have uh, kind of standards uh, that we can um, implement. 
Um, and uh, it also helps a lot for hardware security. Uh, because, yeah, some time ago I gave a talk uh, somewhere uh, about my fantasies about the perfect, well, not perfect, but uh, next gen of the hardware wallet. Uh, and uh, it actually requires uh, Schnorr signatures. So what you can do, you can take a single piece of hardware and you can combine their uh, different secure elements in different implementations uh, uh, in, in one device, you can combine multiple of them with different security models. For example, you can take one chip that is closed source proprietary running this uh, smart card Java card OS, for example, and use that. Plus, on top, you add something like a uh, free and open source FPGA-based RISC-V uh, chip that might be not so well tested, but is also looks very promising, and use that for another key. And then you can have the third one that is something in between, uh, like our Maxim chip or whatever, uh, and it can have the third key. And then uh, when you have these three secure chips in the same device, uh, you split your secret into three using, for example, Shamir secret sharing. Uh, and with Schnorr and Shamir Secret Sharing, you actually have more features. So uh, if in normal Shamir Secret Sharing and normal ECDSA, you need to combine all the pieces together to get the key in one place, with Schnorr, you can actually combine the signatures. So you don't need to combine the shares themselves. Uh, you can sign, kind of make shares of the signature on each of these devices, on each of these shares of the key, and then combine together the signature at the end. So this is like a, um, somehow similar to music, but not quite. Uh, but uh, this is really, really interesting approach that I would be happy to see in the wild. Uh, where you can mitigate these uh, trust issues to the particular um, secure element by adding more of different implementations. Interesting. And something else that I want to ask you about your academic background is, at which point did you decide that it's time to get into Bitcoin? And what was it that drew you into it? Because I suppose that it's easy to get sucked into all of this academic life and all of the hierarchies and all of that situation where you have to constantly do research and start taking guest lecturing positions and try to advance in your ranks and get acknowledgement from all the other peers. So what was it that made you give up on that and get into Bitcoin full time? Hey, psst. hey, what's your plan for the next Bitcoin top. Unless you need the money to purchase something, you probably should not touch infinitely inflationary fiat. Check out Voltoro and figure out to which extent hard money like gold and silver can help you preserve your purchasing power. You will be able to get back into Bitcoin as soon as the price hits a new bottom and you will not be subjected to the arbitrary inflation-driven volatility of fiat or fiat-backed coins. Obviously, this is not financial advice, and you should understand that all trading involves risks. Wasabi Wallet connects to your full Bitcoin node, and if you're not running one, it downloads block filters anonymously via Tor. 
In either case, you're getting excellent privacy. Download the software today at wasabiwallet.io. Um, well, so there are two things. First, I was missing an immediate reward, let's say. Uh, so basically, when you are doing some fundamental research, uh, you don't even have a chance to see it applied in the wild. So like we are doing such an abstract and uh, like fundamental things that uh, you have a chance that the work that is built on the work that is built on your work uh, may become uh, like uh, useful in in the real world, but it is like several uh, years and steps ahead of what you are doing right now. So like uh, when you are building your your new app, uh, doing the experiments, spending five years on all this stuff, uh, then at the end you do something uh, theoretically interesting and uh, like proving something whatever, and then uh, at the outcome of this uh, you get a paper. Okay, good if it is a paper in nature or something, uh, but it's just the paper, so it's not changing the world. It's uh, okay. It's giving like more knowledge to the humanity about how the world works and so on, uh, but it's not applied anywhere. So that was uh, something that I was really missing, and uh, that was uh, why I looked into Bitcoin. Well, I looked into Bitcoin also because I didn't trust Russian rubble, and so it was a saving. Uh, like uh, the way to save my funds back then. Uh, but also I saw that all this cryptography and math and uh, all this uh, interesting like uh, mathematical and cryptographical uh, kind of tricks and tweaks, they are really awesome from like academic perspective. So you can do something interesting there, but you also see how it immediately applies to the real world, how it is changing the world. So Bitcoin changed the world. I, th I don't think that uh, there are any questions about that. And it is based on the research, on the cryptography, uh, in, in on the math and all the stuff. And yeah, it's it's really uh, enjoyable to see that you can contribute and you can do something very interesting and it can be useful for people. So that was the first thing. And the second thing is, hmm, I didn't see uh, any really like bright future for myself in this field. So the thing is that uh, I'm not particularly smart and I, especially when you go into like really deep quantum physics stuff, uh, and I was not super successful there. So I was, there was no chance for me to get a top tier lab. So like to lead the experiment that is like one of 10 top uh, quantum labs, uh, something like that. And if you don't get to this very small top uh, of scientists, then you struggle with the funding, you struggle with the grants, uh, with the equipment, with the place, with the labs, with the students, with all the resources. So basically, yeah, you need to be extraordinary to be successful in uh, any academia work. Otherwise, you have to end up in the industry somehow. Uh, and yeah, Bitcoin uh, felt just right for me. So yeah, not very smart person can do uh, interesting stuff. So I don't need to invent a new signature scheme, but I can do like uh, hardware security and things. Yeah, now I feel like, um, yeah, I 
kind of say that hardware security is easy, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, just wanted to say that, uh, yeah, quantum physics is nice, but you need to be really, really top. And uh, in Bitcoin fields, uh, we have people like Adam Beck, like uh, Peter Willier, Andrew Perestra, and other Bookstream guys that are really, really smart, and I don't speak the same language even. So, like, they are on a completely different level. But still, on my level, I can do something useful, and this is really inspiring and really nice. Yeah, I think I see you more like the Andrew Polstra type of person. So you're a bit humble and you tend to lower yourself and your contributions, but you shouldn't. And it's also interesting that you presented academia as this place where it's all about competition and meritocracy. Whereas in my experience, it was more about knowing which ass to kiss and finding the next professor who's about to retire, you know, going taking part of his seminars and carrying his suitcase around and offering to do some grading on the papers that he receives from students. And when he retires, you, you're next in line. So that was kind of my experience with the doctorate and those well, studies where I was... sounds very different from my experience. So for me, it was always like either you are the best and then you get all the perks, like all the funding and the webs and so on, or you are somewhere in the middle and then maybe you need to kiss some asses to, to get a position, uh, but then you also don't have uh, enough resources to do something like super nice. But at the same time, there are two different layers to academia. There's teaching and then there's research. And it's kind of sad when you get pressure to do both because most of the times you compromise and we haven't figured out a system to incentivize people to just focus on one side of it and just maybe allow somebody else to teach your research or something like that? I was also teaching uh, when I was back in Moscow and I actually find it pretty useful. Uh, not, No, yeah, it's uh, lots of time that goes for the preparation and for teaching and so on. Uh, but the benefit is that you have a source of smart students. So when you are teaching the students, you can evaluate them, you can find smart ones, and then you can grab these smart guys into your web. And this is like very valuable for the web because all the webs are built on the shoulders of students actually. So like uh, postdocs and PIs and so on, they do mostly like uh, freaking boring paperwork and ordering and all this stuff. And sometimes thinking about the direction of the experiment and kind of guiding the students uh, what to do. But uh, it is crucial that the students that build your web are really nice and really good. And uh, teaching actually helps a lot to uh, have access to these smart students and to uh, kind of grab them early before someone else grabbed them. <laughs> yeah, but then again, you did quantum physics and stuff like that, and I did philosophy. So oh, I, I guess it's very, very different. different. <laughs> yeah. So there isn't much research to be done. It's more like innovating in some regard. I think right now in philosophy, the most popular ideas concern ethics and medical ethics and bioethics and stuff like that, and even animal rights and all of these ideas. I think these are the trendiest in this regard. And also social justice, there was a lot of it. And it, it was sickening to some point. Like I got in academia in 2011 when I was a first year student. 
And I saw in about five to six years how we switched from just speak your mind and this is a place where we can debate anything to making lists of stuff you cannot talk about. It was interesting. We're living interesting times. Anyway, let's get back to Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's say that somebody buys today his first Bitcoins, like $1,000 or something. What is going to be your recommendation for them to start securing their coins? Because obviously they should not be on exchanges. But what do you think should be the first step towards learning a healthy way of securing coins and possibly advancing towards something more advanced? Okay, so here it depends on why you are buying Bitcoins. So if you are buying Bitcoins just uh, in the hope that you will get rich at some point, then probably the best way is not to store it yourself at all and find some kind of uh, kind of custodial or whatever, some fund that can uh, store Bitcoins for you and you just have a piece of paper confirming that, okay, you bought uh, 1,000 euros of Bitcoin. Uh, this is if you care only about the price. Uh, if you uh, like me and care about not trusting others to uh, hold your funds, this is how I got into Bitcoin actually. I uh, was buying Bitcoin and then uh, soon after that Russian rubble crashed by a factor of two, so I kind of saved all my, all my money this way. Uh, and uh, for me it was crucial that okay i'm paranoid enough that i don't trust anyone else uh, to store my funds this is also why i started building a hardware wallet because i don't trust anyone else including like treasure ledger and so on so i decided okay i will better make something by myself uh, yeah so it's definitely not a recommended way for normal people uh, but uh, let's say you're not very technical but you don't want anyone else to be in control of your money then uh, I think that uh, uh, even with 1,000 euros, you probably want to look into some kind of uh, cheap hardware wallets, maybe Trezor T or something, or Ledger X, or uh, even Cobo. Well, Cobo is... Uh, ah, wait. So how, how much do they cost? Actually, around 100, all of them, right? Yeah, I think they're kind of the same price. Okay, so uh, 100 for 1,000 euros is probably too much. So what I was doing when I started, I actually had my old Android phone uh, that uh, I was very lucky uh, had a broken uh, wireless uh, module. So I wasn't able to uh, connect uh, to the Wi-Fi with it. Uh, so I installed Electrum there and I used Electrum as a signer. So as an ergot signer right away. Mm, because basically what scares me most uh, is uh, to store my keys, my Bitcoin keys and other keys on the laptop where I browse to the internet, you know, kind of browsing internet and, and stuff like that. Because I know it will be compromised. It will be eventually compromised because, uh, yeah, there are plenty of uh, zero days, one days vulnerabilities out there. And uh, it's pretty easy to get something bad on your computer, let's say. So uh, in that sense, I think either a cheap hardware wallet or even an AirGap phone would work well. Uh, it probably is better even to use your phone instead of your laptop because uh, mobile operation systems have a better isolation uh, between the apps. 
so if you are storing your bitcoins on your phone, either Android or iOS, it's probably safer comparing to your laptop, no matter what kind of laptop is it. Um, yeah, and uh, as soon as your uh, amount of funds reaches something like maybe uh, 10k or something, I would say that, uh, okay, if you are holding an amount of money, then you probably want to dedicate something like uh, 1% uh, to the security of this money. Uh, so if you hold 1,000 euros, then basically you don't have uh, many choices. doesn't really make sense to use hardware wallet or order hardware wallet because yeah, you will spend 10% of your money on that. Uh, in that sense, in that case, a normal app would be nice. Uh, so if you are not paying with Bitcoin, well, what mobile wallets I can recommend hmm, that are non-custodial? Um, well, I personally use Phoenix. So uh, Phoenix from, I think, uh, this uh, Lightning-only wallet uh, that is pretty interesting and supports both payment to Bitcoin and Lightning addresses at the same time. Uh, and uh, they kind of merge this functionality really nicely. Um, so that is a pretty good option, I would say. Um, Electrum, I don't quite like the user interface there, uh, on mobile especially. Um, so then what else? Blue Wallet. Uh, Blue Wallet, uh, I had some problems with that on the phone that is really, really cheap phone. So uh, like the um, user interactions in general was a little bit laggy, so I don't know. Um, yeah, for 1,000 euros, I think like Phoenix is fine, Green Wallet is fine, um, something like that. I didn't try many uh, software wallets. Uh, then when you go to something like 10k or so, I think that it's definitely worth uh, getting something like Ledger uh, Nano X or something like that. Trezor T is also fine. Um, and I think they, well, the thing is that uh, the hardware wallets, <laughs> uh, Ledger has really great hardware. Like if you are worried that someone will break into your house and steal your hardware wallet and try to hack into it, then a letter is your choice. Uh, if you don't care about that so much, but you care more about Bitcoin logic and proper verification of the transactions and in the future integration into multisig, then Trezor T is much better. So like there are two different companies with a completely different uh, kind of pros and cons. So one is really uh, hardware security focused and another one is really like uh, making Bitcoin standards, uh, verification, uh, open source and everything like that. So I don't know what to choose. I mean, uh, it would be perfect if they could work on something together, but it will probably never happen because they don't quite like each other. Um, yeah, so hardware wallet should come after you reach uh, a few thousand K, I would say. Mm. Then uh, when to go to multi-seek is probably when you go to uh, 100k or so, and then you definitely want multi-vendor multi-sig. And uh, on the way, you should definitely research uh, and try to understand how all this stuff works, because you need to know what is your recovery phrase, what exactly it is. Like, maybe not on the how, you know, how you derive keys from it, but at least understand that, uh, okay, there is this words, they uh, are a human readable representation of your entropy, 
you can add this password, what exactly this password does, so like uh, why this password was introduced, uh, how it affects your security, all these kind of things. So when you're getting more and more comfortable about that, and when you start understanding, okay, why do I want to go to Multisig? Because I don't trust a single vendor, for example, or because I want to uh, do multisig with my friends, uh, such that we together control the funds, uh, and uh, one can spend uh, the funds of our like common wealth and so on, or common fund or something. Um, yeah, so every step should come with a reasoning why you are doing that. Yeah. That's very similar to what Peter Todd told me last year. And actually, he was a fan of getting used iPhones and wiping them because he said that the security on them is very good. So it it's just a good idea to get a wiped iPhone, actually get a used one, wipe it yourself and update it with the latest operating system and run only a mobile wallet on it. He said that in terms of plausible deniability and privacy, it's kind of the best approach because almost anyone, I mean, nobody would be surprised if you own an iPhone in your house. And I would be very scared of using anything that was used before. So, I mean, you don't know who did what to your phone. And uh, for complex systems like phones and the laptops, there are so many ways how you can hide malware there that uh, I would probably try to avoid uh, using used phones. Or yeah, but when phones. you wipe it, unless there is some kind of hardware modification to the device? Yeah, yeah, hardware modification is pretty, uh, pretty easy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but when you connect to Apple's services, I think it checks the hardware and it tells you when something is not right. Yeah, it could be. Um, I... I mean, I don't quite like uh, the Apple products, even though I'm on MacBook right now, but uh, how they lock everything. So I, I don't know. Um, I personally would go with Android phone, but uh, if he thinks that uh, iPhone works better, then it's his choice. Yeah, so <laughs> you need to make your own choice. Yeah, it's kind of funny because this discussion about Android versus Apple is kind of the same as Trezor versus Ledger. Mm. Well, I think that Ledger are not trying to walk everyone. Uh, I mean, you know that you can actually write an app for Ledger, right? So... Uh, if you are not happy with the functionality of their Bitcoin wallet, you can write your own uh, Bitcoin wallet for Ledger. And then you have all the benefits of this uh, hardware security and uh, NDA framework that they developed. And then you top, uh, on top you put your own logic. Uh, well, I, I think you can also use the Ledger with Wasabi. They have added an integration and I'm pretty sure that Electrum finds it. But I don't think you can set it up I think Ledger has made it so that you must connect to their service to be allowed to do the initial setup. And there is no, I, not that I'm aware of, there is no other way to install the firmware updates other than connecting to their servers. Oh, that might be true. Yeah. 
Oh yeah, then in some sense, Ledger is locking everyone to their servers. Yeah, but they also have, uh, yeah, so in that sense, I understand, yeah, so you, uh, both Apple and Ledger have a security model that, okay, we guys, we know better, so you better connect to our servers and we do all the verification for you, so like, the approach, users are stupid and we are smarter, and in many cases it is true, but it's also a little bit frustrating and annoying. And Trezor and Android uh, is another approach where do whatever you want with your device, it's your responsibility. Yeah. There are people out there who advocate, like, most of the time on Twitter and tell people that they should not use hardware wallets because if they buy them, they can be subjected to supply chain attacks. And if they build them themselves, it's most likely that they have no idea what they're doing and there can be a lot of malevolent code which gets injected. And they're going to be like, why don't you just set up a multi-sig with nothing but open source software like Bitcoin Core and Electrum. And you print the stuff, you print your QR codes with the private keys with your printer offline, or you also keep your backups on CDs and stuff like that. I think JW Wetterman has a system that's called Yeti Cold and he promotes it, but at the same time, he scares away newbies from buying hardware wallets and tells them to not use them at all. Why do you think that using a hardware wallet is a good idea and most users should do it? Uh, so supply chain attack, uh, I, I see the point there. So yeah, obviously when you receive the package from Ledger or Trezor or uh, Code Card or whatever, you uh, disclose to everyone that uh, you're working with Bitcoins. Uh, in that sense, um, DIY hardware wallets are better because this is common um, kind of off-the-shelf uh, components, developer boards, so you don't disclose that you are using it for Bitcoin. And uh, my personal take is that DIY hardware wallets are better than laptops because the attack surface is smaller. Uh, because uh, when you look at your laptop, there are plenty of components there. And uh, many of these components have even internal memory, can be tampered with, can be replaced, swapped, and so on. Uh, and uh, also the whole operation system, uh, I mean, it's written, some parts of this system is written without security in mind. So if you are writing the hardware wallet, you always think about what the attacker will do. And in case of a Linux system, especially, imagine you're writing a video player or some other uh, thing that has nothing to do with security. But you can introduce a vulnerability that uh, will enable the attacker to get into your computer, especially when you're thinking about the device drivers. So you can easily exploit the device driver. I think there was a talk at Black Hat uh, some time ago, a couple years ago, uh, that uh, you can hack into the Linux system by uh, abusing the driver of the smart card reader. Uh, because the Linux system is expecting that your smart card that you normally use for authentication uh, shouldn't be malicious. Yeah, and uh, they wrote it in a way that uh, basically there was uh, a way to hack into your system uh, using this, uh, this kind of device. Also, like USB in general, like you are plugging something into your computer uh, and it can 
tell the computer what is it. So it can tell that it is a keyboard or it is a mouse or whatever else. So there are plenty of uh, ways how I can compromise your computer. And in that sense, if you are using the hardware wallet, then the code is really minimal. So just uh, the binary of Ubuntu installation is uh, one point something gigabytes. Yeah? The firmware of uh, any hardware wallet is around one megabyte. So, and obviously it has some relations to the code as well. So uh, basically this means that on your laptop you have 1000 times more code running uh, or not maybe running, but it is there that can be exploited. So it's like 1000 times more attack surface. And so this is, I think the main problem. Uh, also regarding the weatherman and Yeti code, um, I don't think that the guy understands like the standards. So he was trying to use Bitcoin Core with hardened derivation and he was struggling why uh, we cannot support it in Spectre Desktop. But damn, it is hardened derivation. I mean, if you know what is hardened derivation, then you know why we cannot freaking watch the funds. Uh, so in that sense, I wouldn't trust this particular guy because I don't think that he knows what he's doing. Uh, there are other standards, for example, the Glacier protocol, I think, where you uh, are supposed to use multiple uh, laptops, also air-gapped, and also wiping them or using tails, uh, that is amnesic uh, operation system that forgets everything after you turn it off. Uh, it is pretty difficult to uh, kind of set up, to operate, and so on, uh, but I am sure that there are people that uh, use that because this is how they, uh, well, this is their security model. And uh, I think that for normal people going with uh, laptops and multi-seeks is not very convenient. And I think that there are plenty of ways how you can screw up your setup if you are using something complicated. So uh, as far as I know, there is more Bitcoins lost because of the user errors comparing to the hacks. So uh, you should not only think about how you can be attacked, but you can also you should also think how you can screw up yourself, how you can shoot yourself in the foot, uh, because this uh, actually has more chances uh, comparing to someone getting into your hardware wallet or uh, into your setup. So yeah, you also need to think about: uh, Do you feel comfortable about your setup? And can you easily reproduce it and recover from any kind of failure, like earthquake, uh, burn in the house, or whatever else? So, yeah, that's my take. Yeah, I've actually had a funny experience with the cold card because I booted it up a year later and I realized that I have no idea how it's used. So I needed to watch a YouTube video to figure out something just because I forgot. Um, yeah, so with the code cards, the user experience is not uh, very nice. Uh, I mean, I still respect them a lot because they were the first movers in the air-gapped field. So like uh, code card, I think, is the first who introduced the air-gap. And I think it is a really nice approach. Uh, but user experience could be better. Uh, so the hardware is also, uh, as far as I know, breaking sometimes accidentally and stop working. So buy two cold cards if you want to go with the cold card. 
Mm, yeah, another thing that worries me a lot, uh, but it doesn't only apply to Coldcard, but also to our project, is when you have uh, only few contributors. So Coldcard firmware is mostly written by uh, Peter Gray, the CTO of the company. Uh, NVK is more like a, a spoken person or something. Um, and uh, also in transparency, in sense of their GitHub repository is closed for issues, I think. So if you try to open an issue there, you, you can't really. Um, so this worries me a lot. And in that sense, uh, also the fact that Passport took their code and uh, started working on top of that um, also worries me a bit because it's basically based on the work of a single person. I mean, in our case, it's also pretty similar. So uh, like uh, the whole logic of Spectre DIY is written by uh, me. So I'm the main contributor there, like 90% of the logic uh, is written by me. And this is also the security uh, problem. And yeah, another underlying layer and uh, the bootloader and stuff is written by uh, another guy in our company who is actually a security uh, hardware security experts and uh, but also like uh, one guy writes one part and I review that and then uh, I write another part and nobody really reviews it this is very scary so in that sense Trezor and Ledger have much better reputation and history and uh, the size of the company also matters like 15 engineers is better than two I suppose um, yeah, but I think that I watched the track, what we were discussing. <laughs> oh yeah, no worries. But I think that this situation can be mitigated if you get the funds to pay for security audits and people to look at your code. Mm, yeah, uh, either that or uh, if you actually build something that people start building on top. So like Trezor, for example, let's take Trezor. Uh, the cryptography library, elliptic curve crypto library, uh, is used in uh, majority of uh, hardware wallets. So, uh, cold cards, passports, uh, KeepKey is just a fork of Trezor. Then there are plenty of uh, hobby projects as well that build on top of that. Uh, so, they really developed something that is used by the community and that is also therefore reviewed by the community and also attacked a lot. So, I think that uh, Trezor has the largest uh, number of disclosed uh, attacks uh, and mitigations on them. So this is like really interesting and nice. And I also know that they, yeah, they have a really big and nice team working on that, but also many eyes looking at that. So my hope is that uh, our project will also evolve into something that people can build upon. So you can take uh, the library and build on top of that and uh, then as soon as more projects become more and more popular, we will get bug reports, uh, contributors, and things like that. And uh, yeah, so Bowser is using uh, the Arduino library that we developed. SeedSigner is using our Python, MicroPython library that we developed. So we are getting there and I hope that it will continue and this is kind of our way to grow the community and become more secure. This is really counterintuitive because in every other industry, if somebody starts building 
on your grounds and on your research, it's kind of like, you know, competition. I didn't want to call it competition, but it is competition. But in open source, the fact that somebody forks your code and uses it for a different purpose and gives it another life and establishes a different user base only means that your code is getting more reviewed and getting more robust and tested for different use cases and gives you greater confidence that you're doing a great work or else helps you improve on something that you developed and has issues that you did not figure out when you first wrote it. So I think that from this point of view, open source is just incredible. And I very much appreciate the people who engage in this type of development. But I'm not even sure how most of you make money because most of the times the donation system doesn't work. And most people, when they can get something for free, they get it and they don't think about the people who wrote the code and spent maybe a few years of their lives doing research and doing practical code writing. And I don't think there are many sponsors in this field yet because even the core developers sometimes struggle to find sponsorships. I think the only way that you can make money is through consultancy, but I'll let you develop more on this idea. Um, yeah, so when you're doing uh, open source, uh, it's hard to monetize that. So what we decided uh, to do, as I said, is more like to build a platform uh, and uh, to use it mostly for, uh, well, to get money from the enterprise, actually. So our focus is, okay, we have Spectre Desktop. That is a, a great uh, software, Bitcoin wallet focused on multi-seek and hardware wallets. Uh, we have Spectre DIY, that is our hardware wallet platform that uh, works well with like all this air gap and all this uh, interesting uh, entropy features and stuff. Uh, and then we built uh, on top of that something that companies need. So, for example, uh, if you are running some uh, fund or some uh, even the custodian or any kind of exchange or whatever, uh, so you are running a company and you are holding bitcoins. Uh, hardware wallets don't work for you anymore because hardware wallets are built like normal uh, single-user hardware wallets are built around uh, the assumption that, okay, you have the user, the user provides you the pin code, and then he can do whatever he wants with the funds. And it doesn't work in the corporate setting. Uh, so what we do, we take our uh, open source uh, MIT free uh, platform, and we build on top of that some custom functionality. For example, the additional authentication layer that hardware Hardware wallet will not sign uh, the transaction unless you provide certain authorizations from multiple people from multiple departments. Uh, and only if it verified that, okay, the security officer signed and then the operator signed, then it will sign the transaction. So it's more uh, going into this uh, fancy HSM style mode uh, and uh, customizing it for more complex scenarios that are uh, not really relevant for normal hodlers and bitcoiners, but uh, is very appreciated by the companies. And this is our kind of monetization strategy right now that, uh, okay, first we build nice tools that work for the community and for Bitcoin. Uh, and then we uh, add some bells and whistles uh, for enterprises that can pay the bills for us. Uh, 
And then we can continue improving our open source free software and hardware. And uh, the guys also get all the benefits of this uh, interesting functionality. Yeah, it's definitely something groundbreaking from this point of view. And I look forward to seeing how far this can get because to some extent it feels experimental, but at the same time you look at how Microsoft was making fun of Linux like 15 years ago and you had Steve Ballmer calling it like a cancer or something. And now they are actively funding Linux projects because they figured out that they can use these open source operating systems for testing of features and they can also integrate some of the functionalities. So it's really incredible to see that this has gotten to this point where it's inevitable and it's part of how software gets built. And you also have very competent, what should I call them, alternatives to software which costs a lot of money like Office platforms like Photoshop, video editing, everything that you can think about, there is an open source alternative which might not have the same nice user interface yet, but it has kind of the same functionalities. And I think the it's nice incredible. thing is uh, also that uh, these open source tools, uh, when you start using them, and okay, for example, let's take Blender, the 3D software, right? Uh, I start using it. Uh, I see that there is some feature missing, and then I can make a pull request and add this feature. And if it is nicely done, it will be merged. And I can't imagine uh, writing, uh, uh, making a pull request to Photoshop or to Maya or whatever else uh, software that I pay like a uh, few thousand euros per month or however, how much it costs. Yeah, so it's uh, also free open source software motivates people to contribute back uh, however they can. So either this is donation, this is not very reliable, but uh, a different uh, story is with pull requests and developers. So like you can get your product better uh, by giving it for free. And this is insane. Okay, so let's get back to the topic of Spectre. And I'm going to ask you what is next for the Spectre software wallet and what is next for the DIY hardware project. So recently we added Miniscript support to the hardware wallet. Um, yeah, this is like a side effect of this enterprise story. Uh, so now, in principle, we already support uh, any kind of uh, scripts, including time walks uh, uh, and uh, Lightning Network and whatever else. Uh, but our software wallet doesn't support it yet. So we need to do that. So this is the first, uh, I think, uh, you should be able to do interesting uh, mini script like Bitcoin scripts, custom scripts, uh, with uh, the software and the hardware. That is what I'm really looking forward to. Um, then what else? Uh, another thing uh, that I'm uh, looking forward um, So for the hardware, uh, right now, if you want to use the secure element, the smart card, uh, the only way is to get this extension board that we have. So I'm looking forward to a completely DIY setup where you can just plug uh, this uh, normal smart card reader to the device. Then our DIY uh, will option will be fully functional, like everything that you can do with this with the extension board, you can do with that as well. Um, 
what else? Uh, so on both hardware and software side, uh, we are looking at liquid support. That's uh, something uh, interesting, like the second layer. Uh, so Lightning is not on the roadmap yet because we focus mostly on uh, kind of hodling and cold storage and air gap. So and it is uh, extremely hard with Lightning, obviously, almost well, basically impossible. Um, yeah. Then uh, another interesting thing is. Uh, I think it was two years ago when uh, we were hanging out with the Trezor team and uh, we were uh, writing this uh, coin join uh, standard for hardware wallets, how to verify uh, that all the inputs and outputs, uh, which inputs and outputs belong to you and which not. So I think that uh, having something like uh, automatic coin join support in the hardware would be really nice. Uh, it could uh, play nicely with something like either Wasabi or uh, Join Market, mm, whatever else is out there. And the question is uh, right now, who will be the first uh, coin join server that will implement the standard? It is already in the slips. I think it's uh, Satoshi Labs improvement proposals slip 19 and 20. Uh, yeah, that would be very cool. Uh, what else? Uh, Taproot is coming, right? And uh, with the Taproot, uh, there are plenty of things to work on, both on software and on the hardware. Uh, for example, music support uh, is not even close to be standardized, and we really need to work hard in that direction such that the standard is actually reasonable. Uh, and it will actually require a collaboration between uh, multiple hardware wallet vendors. So we uh, need to stop fighting with each other, but actually collaborate, uh, because we it is often interactive. And this means that we need to find a common way to pass data over to other hardware wallets to do this music stuff. Yeah, what else? I think that's already enough. That's a lot. <laughs> no, it is a lot. And I think you're, I don't think that heading is a good verb, but you are coordinating quite an interesting project and you have started quite an interesting movement because you found some parts that were missing in Bitcoin Core and in Electrum and you built them under the kind of user interface that even people who are new into this space can understand and can use. I've seen a lot of good reviews of the Spectre wallet, and I've even seen some enthusiasts who are building their own hardware wallets with the DIY specifications. I think it's really good. I'm proud of the fact that we get more open source in this space and a lot more interesting projects. And I don't know, I, I hope that in the coming year, we're going to have maybe another interview and talk about some other integrations that you have made and other plans that you have, because this space evolves so fast. And last year, I've recorded an entire season about hardware wallets. And at the time, I was not aware that there is the Spectre project. But I did interviews with Trezor, with Ledger, with KeepKey, with Bitbox02, Kobo, ColdCard, also, Peter Todd and Lazy Ninja, because they Peter Todd is kind of a good person for security. He understands how it works and he can give some advice. And Lazy Ninja is known for hacking some hardware wallets. So he has found vulnerabilities in the Bitbox 02, Cold Card, and 
what else? I, I think he disclosed them all and he has earned some nice bounties, I hope, at least. And what I wanted to say with this is that maybe that the questions are the same, but the answers have changed. And this space evolves very, very fast and there's a lot happening and there are lots of maybe changes that get brought by user demand and the greater demand for security. And I think that the standard has been raised for the amount of security that users get in free wallets, which I think is incredible. And I'm grateful for your work. And I feel ashamed right now because I'm not sure if I any, have any more questions for you, except maybe how can people follow you and how can they contribute to Spectre or some other projects that you work on? Um, well, I don't, I'm not sure that people will be really interested into following me because I don't like uh, tweet for several months. I mostly tweet only about the releases of uh, Spectre uh, DIY and retweeting about the releases of Spectre desktop. Uh, but anyways, uh, so on Twitter, I, I am on Twitter, uh, Stepan Snigarov is my handle. Uh, then if you're interested more into Mm, like contributing, then uh, we have a GitHub organization called Crypto Advance. This is a, a name of our company before rebranding, let's say. Uh, and uh, it has uh, the repositories for Spectre Desktop, Spectre DIY. Uh, and I think that right now, if you just type Spectre Desktop into Google, you actually get into uh, the GitHub repository. That is nice. Um, and uh, yeah, there are plenty of uh, like issues, some documentations, and uh, uh, also we have a group on Telegram uh, that is also written in uh, in the in the repository, uh, and also people can just directly message me on Telegram. Yeah. You said something that made me chuckle a bit because you said that your your name is crypto until you're rebranding. Like, doesn't crypto stand for cryptography? Uh, well, yeah. So uh, the company, uh, the name of the company uh, is Crypto Advance. Uh, and so after Spectre, both desktop and DIY uh, became popular, we actually uh, registered a website, spectre.solutions. Uh, and so this is our like main website where we put all the uh, marketing stuff and uh, also links to the onwards uh, and things like that. So we are seriously thinking about uh, changing the name, but it's pretty difficult from organizational uh, perspective. And I mean, personally, I don't care how our company is named. I mean, what matters is only what we can publish and write and what we stand for. Uh, and in that sense, it doesn't matter if it's Crypto Advance, Spectre Solutions, uh, or whatever else. Uh, yeah, uh, in that sense, the GitHub organization is called Crypto Advance. The website is uh, Spectre.Solutions. And uh, yeah, uh, on Twitter, Spectre Wallet is also another handle that uh, is managed by Morris, uh, our co-founder. Mm, yeah. Okay, so thank you very much for taking your time, Stepan. And I look forward to next releases and possibly doing another interview in the future. Sounds good. Thank you uh, for inviting and for uh, asking all these interesting questions. So it is almost two hours already and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thank you very much.
Yeah, likewise. Bye. Voltoro has a 100% track record with fully audited and insured gold bullion that are secured in a top-tier tax-free Swiss vaulting facility. It also features the generous affiliate program OTC Trading, a physical delivery and pickup or trade back to Bitcoin in seconds. Register for free and check out the ways in which you can trade hard money and preserve your wealth. And if you want to help this show, sign up using the voltero.com slash Bitcoin Takeover link that you can also find in the description. Keep in mind that this is not financial advice, all trading involves risks and you are responsible for your own decisions. Wasabi Wallet's innovative coin joints will make your bitcoins more fungible. So if you accumulate more than 0.1 BTC, you can mix it with other users to remove all traces about their whereabouts. So it's like putting multiple fingerprints on your dollar bills and it becomes impossible to determine the last few owners of the money. Download Wasabi Wallet today and start coin joining.